Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives when his disciples came to him and asked him, what will be the sign of your coming? And instead of a date or an exact checklist, Jesus gave them a description of the future that was to come. He gave them warnings to heed about the temptations his people would face, and he gave them examples to follow to teach them how they should wait. He taught them that the Son of Man will arrive unexpectedly, that he will return in surprising glory at a time that nobody is able to predict. Like a servant who doesn't know when his master will be back to check on him, like a sheep who doesn't know when the shepherd will return, Jesus told his disciples that we can't prepare for him to return at a certain time. Instead, he instructed them to be ready for his return at all times. Our Savior made a promise. The dawn is coming. And our teacher gave us a warning. Are you ready? That one's on me. Oh, praise the name of our Lord on high. Man. You know, it's not often we get to follow a song that awesome. Like, what a, what a just incredible thing to walk up to. But if you don't know who I am, my name's Joel Lingenfelter. I'm the executive pastor here at LAFC. Uh, and it's my privilege to open the word of God with you today. Uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise your name. You are the Lord on high and we praise your name forevermore. But Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for preserving it for us. We thank you that we can read from it to discern what, have you, what do you want us to hear today. So Lord, we pray for that. We pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning. Pray that you'd be glorified in all that we do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We will use a lot of scripture today, so if you don't have a Bible, please put your hand up our ushers would be happy to get you one. Uh, if you don't own one, by all means, take this home as our gift. Uh, we are just thrilled that you're with us today. If you prefer to use a device, a phone, or a tablet, uh, there's an app called Uversion that's a Bible app, and in there there's an events tab. When you go on that, it'll bring you up to a map. That map will bring you to uh, Linux, and you'll see LEFC. You can click on that, and that will have all the verses that we'll use today. Rising Before Dawn is the name of our series, and it's a study of Matthew chapter 24 and 25. You know, one of the incredible things about Scripture is that it can often address both near and far. And in the case of Matthew 24, there's interweaving strands of near and far. And today's passage has a lot more of near in it, uh, but there are other elements that, that may be end times. And what we'll see is regardless of whether the target is near or far, there are messages that are important for us today. So Matthew 24 begins with a conversation between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus left the temple, it says in Matthew 24, verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Now our text contains the simplest account of this event, but the Gospel of Mark gives us a little more insight into Jesus' response, as well as the minds of the disciples themselves. And really quick, because we're going to move on, on this map, if you look, you'll see the temple there, and then to the right of that, it's a little bit east, you'll see 
the Mount of Olives. And what we're in today is actually something that, that a conversation that took place on the Mount of Olives in view of the temple. So going back to, to the Gospel of Mark for a moment, it says this in, in chapter 13, verse 1, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones and what magnificent buildings. And this is, I wish it was a photograph, but it's a, it's a drawing of what we believe the Temple Mount looked like. And you can see it is incredibly impressive. The temple was the pride and joy of the Jewish people, was the most important building in their lives. And the temple and its surrounding complex, they were in the midst of being refurbished and expanded, something that started in the reign of Herod the Great. And all the various pieces would continue all the way till AD 64. And the temple has always been present in their lifetime. And I imagine they believe it would always stand as a monument to God and the center of Jewish life. So Matthew 24, verse 2, Jesus says, Do you see all these things? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Now that was not the response his listeners expected. I'm guessing it created quite a stir among the twelve. Now, Jesus and his disciples, they left the temple area and they made their way up to the Mount of Olives, as I said, about half a mile east of the temple. And it would have given them an excellent view of the temple and the surrounding region. And as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Now, the answer to this, it makes up what we call the Olivet Discourse. And the Olivet Discourse is basically the conversation and, and the preaching that Jesus did looking at the temple from the Mount of Olives. Now, I think this context is important because it will help us understand the mind of the listener and help us understand why Jesus said some of the things that he did. Now, I have a personal confession. I am what some people would call a history geek. Uh, and I am thankful that I am married to someone that you can call a history geek. So we can have a perfectly fun evening sitting at home watching a program on the history of a building or, or maybe even a, a YouTube video on how to make an ancient Babylonian stew. Um, <clears throat> now, I realize that, that not all of you are, are into ancient cooking lessons uh, and into talking history, and, and I get that. Um, but we're going to have to cover some history today because it just makes the context make so much more sense. So stay with me as I give you this fire hose of Jewish history. So not to state the obvious, but the Jewish people have been through a lot up to this point, right? So there was, there was 400 years of slavery in Egypt followed by the Exodus. What a great moment and then 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Then they entered the promised land only to experience 300 years of oppression by the surrounding people and, and fighting with those surrounding people. And then we had the success and the failures of Saul. And we had the reign of King David. And then the succession of Solomon and the building of the temple. And the whole nation was united. And then it was fragmented and ultimately destroyed. And the temple itself was destroyed in 587 BC. So over the years after that, they were ruled by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Ptolemies from Egypt, and the Seleucids. 
Okay, so there will not be a quiz at the end of this. You can all relax. It's going to be good. Uh, But in verse 15 of our text today, so we're in Matthew 24. We're going to start in verse 15, and we'll get there in a little bit. But in verse 15, there's a phrase, the abomination that causes desolation. Now, this catchy phrase is really important. Uh, So I'm going to give you some context to understand what it is all about. So back to Jewish history, we are now in what we would call the intertestamental period. Now, they didn't call it that, right? But we do. It's between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. There's some of this history in what we know of as the Apocrypha. Uh, Now, during this, this period, there was a leader of the Seleucids known as Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Now, this this group that had conquered Israel and Judah, Antiochus was determined to end the worship of God. He was just adamantly against it. Everyone here needs to become a Hellenist. In other words, they need to worship the Greek gods. It will just make everything so much easier in his life, and that's what's most important. Now, the, the prophet Daniel, he wrote about this period hundreds of years before. And if we look in, in chapter 11 of the book of Daniel... Uh, If you have one of our Bibles, it's on page 840. I'd like you to turn there with me. Chapter 11, and we'll begin in verse 28. What we're going to see here is what Antiochus Epiphanes did, which is that he he attempted to force Israel to submit. By by desecrating the temple, he set an, an idol of Zeus up on the altar and then had a pig sacrifice to it. Uh, This act, and that many Jews would turn away from God, was prophesied by Daniel. So let's see that in in 11, uh, verse 28. Okay, I can find 28, really. Then the king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it and then return to his own country. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him, and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. So pay attention to that. Vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. That's against the worship of God. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Now, if that sounded like a lot of words to you, let me summarize. Antiochus will will attack the Jews specifically, and he will desecrate the temple in order to force everyone to convert to worship of the Greek gods. However, this didn't put an end to the worship of God as he'd hoped. It in fact backfired rather spectacularly and it created what is called the Maccabean Revolt. And this was, as it says here, resisted rather firmly. Uh, The the Jewish people rose up against the Seleucids and ushered in a period of self-rule that would, would last until the Romans came in. So now, we're getting to the time of Christ. So every Jewish person, when they hear the language abomination of desolation, what they're going to think of is these things that we just talked about. They're going to think of 
of something being set up in the temple. They're going to think of an army attacking Jerusalem. These are the images that are going to come to mind. And also, they're going to think, that's how we get our independence. So think about that. They're ruled by Rome, and they're being compelled or told they need to worship gods that they don't want to worship. Through all of these trials, endured the understanding that God had chosen the Jews to be a set-apart people devoted to him. And while their unfaithfulness had led to judgment, they were confident that God would again restore the nation and that it would be Messiah who would be the one to make it happen. Okay, part one of history is over. You can relax. Uh, for those of you that are not with me and wanting to know how to make an ancient Babylonian lamb stew. Uh, so, the disciples, they will ask, they, they will uh, ask what will indicate that Jesus is returning and that the end is near. And this has been our series, right? Jesus responds and he tells them what not to worry about. He says, don't worry about wars. Don't worry about rumors of wars. Don't worry when you're hated. Don't worry about being persecuted. He tells them what they do need to be about, which is preaching the gospel to all nations. And then he says the word every preacher loves. He says, therefore. Now, maybe he says something else in your translation like so, but therefore is so much more fun to say, right? Because whenever you see the word therefore, you have to find out what it's there for. Thank you. <laughs> so he says, therefore. So Jesus says, don't worry about these things. You're going to be about preaching the gospel to all nations. And then we're going to turn to Matthew 24, and we're going to start in verse 15. And that's our text for today. All right, you with me? Starting in verse 15. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in, who in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or on the Sabbath, for there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. So let me connect some dots for you. The disciples of Jesus, they were all Jews. They were living under Roman rule. Now this would be something they're actively praying that God would bring to an end. They also know their history and they know the last time that they went to war and gained their freedom. It started with a single event, an event referred to by the prophet Daniel as an abomination that causes desolation. And they would know that Daniel spoke of such an event at least two more times, and that one of them seems to be about the end of days as spoken of in what we refer to as Daniel chapter 9. So when Jesus brings up the abomination of desolation, this is like saying to an American, hey, when you hear shots are fired at Concord and Lexington, like, oh, hey, I know what that is. That's the start of the Revolutionary War. Right? Or saying to someone who loves history, 
loves World War II. Hey, when Germany invades Poland, like, ah, okay, that's the symbol. That's the beginning. It's go time. So Jesus says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, and then what's he say? Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Wait, what? Did he really say that? He can't be serious. But Jesus continues. He's not only serious, he elaborates. If you're at leisure, if you're relaxing on the roof of your house, don't even go downstairs and get your stuff out, just run. If you're out in the fields at work, don't go home and get anything, just run. If you're out of town, don't come back to town first, just run. Things are gonna get bad, things are gonna get really bad, and you have one job, get out of Dodge. Uh, he might not have said that exactly, but, but that's what he meant. So, so how do we know what the abomination that causes desolation would look like? Is it going to be another idol and a pig? How would, the, would they know when to go? And, and that's where the Gospel of Luke brings some clarity. So Luke's audience, Luke's audience was to Gentiles, somebody who might not know the prophecies of Daniel. And so he highlights some words of Jesus that are a little different. So let's look at chapter 21, verses 20 and 21. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. The words Matthew recorded, they drew the connection to the prophecies of Daniel. And the words Luke recorded, they point us to the fact that the disciples are to watch for an army to surround Jerusalem. What's happening here is Jesus is telling his disciples exactly what to look for. And that when they see it, they need to get away as quickly as possible. And as I read my history, I find that's exactly what happened. So you have an image on the screen there of the siege of Jerusalem. Uh, in 66 AD, the Jews went into full-on open revolt against Rome. And after a number of missteps in which the Romans underestimated the Jews, the emperor Vespasian put his son Titus in charge of ending the revolt of the Jewish people. Now Titus, he wanted to make a name for himself and he responded by completely destroying Jerusalem. Now how bad was it? It was estimated by ancient historians Tacitus and Josephus that there were between 600,000 and 1.1 million people killed in the siege of Jerusalem. Now let me put that into perspective. 600,000 people, the low number, is more than every single man, woman, and child living in Lancaster County. Imagine if you drove across the border, you came into Ephrata, you drove into Lidditz, and there's not a soul left alive. None. That's the low end. And on the high end, it would be like if somebody went into Austin, Texas, or Jacksonville, Florida, or Columbus, Ohio, and killed every single living person. That's the kind of devastation that they experienced. They didn't just conquer Jerusalem, they wiped it out. But what happened to the church? Well, according to the ancient sources, Eusebius and Epiphanes, Christians fled to the city of Pella in the region of Perea, which is modern-day Jordan. If you look at this map, you'll see Jerusalem is red up there just above the words Judah. 
And then they're going to go east or to your right into that area that's marked Perea inside the Decapolis there. And I don't have the exact city of Pella pointed out, but, but that's where they went. They fled Jerusalem and they went east. They heard the words of Jesus, they remembered them, and they did what he told them to do. But as I kept reading this text and praying over this message, it became clear that this was not the only reason for these words of Jesus. And that took me back to first, verse 16. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Great practical advice. Great unexpected advice. But, but why do we have this text if its purpose was fulfilled in AD 70? Why would the Holy Spirit preserve it for us all these years? Now the text gives us some clues. But before I go there, I think an illustration will be helpful. I know many of you in this room, you like football, and I know many of you do not, but you don't have to be an expert in football to understand my point. You see, on a football team, you have an offense and a defense. These are the employees of the organization that are paid to take the field and play the game. But the team also employs coaches, whose job it is to prepare players. It employs front office personnel, whose job it is to be sure that everyone gets paid, uh, that the team has the best players, that the bus shows up, etc. So let's consider this guy. Now, he's probably an expert in his field. He probably has a lot of experience, if a little bit old school in his approach. But he has a job to do, right? He's an accountant in the front office whose job it is is keeping his books, keeping the books. And when he does his job well, vendors get paid, money from ticket sales is collected and properly accounted for. I think it's fair to say that without people like this that do this job, you don't have a functional professional football team. But now imagine this guy's in his office, he's got his little adding machine and his, his cool little hat there, and he hears the star-spangled banner and he goes, this is my chance. And he gets up from his desk and he runs down the stairs and he runs through the tunnel and he runs out on the field and he tries to catch a pass and score a touchdown, right? What you're gonna see is something that looks a bit like this. And that is something that's about to be a lot of pain right? See, that's not his role. His role is to be in the office making sure that everybody else on the team can do their job, to make sure that the people feeding the fans are paid and the team receives money. He's, he's got an important job, but I mean no, respect to, no disrespect to accountants when I say if they take the field, it's not going to end well. And likewise, if you put that NFL player in that guy's office and say, here, do these books, he's probably not going to do a great job of it, right? So, so what does this have to do with our text, besides that really cool picture of that guy getting tackled, right? Well, in your Bibles, look back with me in Matthew 24, and let's look at verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So what's that look like? Well, let's look forward just a little bit to chapter 28. And let's go to verse 18. Most of you are familiar with this. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. 
See, Jesus has just explained our role, and it ties directly with what he said earlier. We're to make disciples. We're to make disciples in our oikos. And what is our oikos? It is the 8 to 15 people that make up our primary relational network. But we're also to make disciples in our community, and we're to make them around the world. And how is this done? Well, a key part of making disciples is sharing the gospel. So, so what is the message for today? Well, church, I think this is important to hear. 21st century Christians, don't worry about wars. Don't worry about rumors of wars. Don't worry about being persecuted for your faith. Don't worry when you're hated or abused. Don't worry about any of those things because they will distract you from what Jesus has called us to do. Proclaim his name to everyone, locally and around the world. And if you see something that makes you think the church is under attack, that God needs you to rise to his defense, don't worry about it. Get out of the way and let Jesus handle it, because that's not our role. Our role is to be messengers, not to fight the battle. If we decide that we need to rise up and fight for the church with violence, we're like the accountant charging on the football field. And things will go much better if we stick to the role we've been given. And our role is that of messenger, not of soldiers. But Joel, you say, Scripture is filled with passages about war and battle and God's armies. And you're absolutely right. And that's exactly what Jesus is speaking to here in Matthew 24. See, his disciples were all in. They're living in the presence of the Jewish Messiah. This is, this is the one that will give them that long-awaited political victory, and they knew it. They're ready when the sign came to do whatever it took to restore Israel. They're ready to protect the temple with their lives because right up till the day they met Jesus, they knew that is the place where God dwells. And what did he say? When you see there's about to be a massive battle in Jerusalem, run away. Your role is not to take up arms on behalf of God. Your role as my disciples, Jesus, not Joel, as my disciples, is to spread the gospel. You are in the communication department, not the war department. So if you still don't believe me, let's turn back a little bit to Matthew 26. We're going to look at verse 46, 47 is where we'll start. This is when Jesus is arrested. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. 
Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 leagues of angels? See, Jesus makes this point with no ambiguity. If he wanted to, he could call enough angels to win any battle that could possibly be in front of him. But he had no interest in starting a battle here on earth. He had bigger plans. The Jews imagined that Jesus would come as a military leader and conquer their enemies. The Messiah came with a better idea. He conquered sin with love. They thought he would overthrow Rome with swords. But what he did was conquered Rome with the gospel. See, Christianity became the official religion of Rome in 381. Now, whether that was good for the church or not is a conversation for another day. But it's inarguable that Christianity spread like wildfire throughout the Roman Empire and completely replaced the pantheon of gods only 350 years after Jesus walked the earth. This was impossible. There was no way that was ever going to happen. You know, when I think about a modern application here, I grew up in an era where there, some people, there were some people who called themselves Christians that felt so strongly about abortion that they blew up abortion clinics and even killed doctors who would dare perform an abortion. Their argument was that they were protecting the most vulnerable of our society. That was not of God. I guarantee you that was not the approach that Jesus advocated for them to take. God was not pleased by the destruction of those buildings and he was definitely not pleased by the killing of those people. And it was a violation of this exact passage. And I don't know that any of those actions moved the needle even a little bit on their cause. If anything, it pushed it backwards and disgraced the gospel. But you know what worked? Prayer. You know what worked? Was people working diligently over the years to advocate for change to protect the unborn. You may be sitting there saying, but Joel, what about the words fight the good fight? I remember those. Those are in scripture, and they are. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let's turn there. If you're in one of, our, one of the Bibles we gave out, it's page 1117, which should tell the rest of you it's pretty far back if you don't know where Timothy is. We're going to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we'll read verses 11 and 12. It says this, but you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Every one of us is to fight the good fight of faith, but that has nothing to do with fighting for God. It's about pursuing righteousness Godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. And as the church, we are responsible for making disciples, not just here, but in the entire world. How do we do that? We do it by preaching the gospel everywhere. We are messengers of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So does this mean we should never get involved in politics? Does this mean we shouldn't serve in the military? Does this mean we should never stand up for our beliefs? These are good questions, 
And let's again look at the word of God for an answer. Turn with me to Philippians 3, verse 20. And I apologize, I did not get this on screen for you. We'll start in verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. The thing I want you to note there, if you didn't get turned in fast enough, is our citizenship is in heaven. Now, this is probably not a surprise to you, but I'm an American citizen. Uh, and over the years, I've had friends that were citizens of other countries. And I've even known a few people that were citizens of more than one country, something called dual citizenship. Chances are that almost everyone that is hearing me is a citizen of a country. But if you are a follower of Jesus, you are also a dual citizen. In addition to your earthly citizenship, you are a citizen of heaven. Now, with citizenship comes responsibilities. For example, in America, if I am called to serve on a jury, I'm required to do so unless I have a government-approved reason not to serve. I have a, a, uh, I'm expected to vote. I'm expected to participate in the betterment of my community. And as a citizen of the United States, if my, if my country called on me personally to go to war, I would do so. But what about our responsibilities as a citizen of heaven? Well, we follow Jesus, and as his disciples, we're called to love God. We're called to love people. We're called to live the truth of his word, and we're called to proclaim his name. What do we do when our responsibilities clash? What do we do when our responsibilities as a citizen of heaven conflict with our responsibilities as a citizen of earth? Well, we, we have to follow Jesus first, right? Because the things of God are eternal, but the things of this world will pass away. We are citizens of heaven and citizens of earthly principalities, and both carry responsibilities. So advocating for the values that are important to you in your community, that's a good thing. Because as citizens, we're to work to improve our communities. Should we protest when our rights are trampled on? Well, that's between you and God, but I'd say Scripture does not say no. Should we allow or should we allow our worldview based on the Word of God to inform how we vote? Well, I think we'd better or we're not being honest with ourselves about what matters most to us. But as citizens of heaven, our role as messengers of the gospel is paramount. Well, what does that mean? It means that every word and deed needs to be informed with the truth of the gospel. And what that means is that how we speak up is every bit as important as what we say. Because if we speak up in a way that pushes people away from Jesus, we're not furthering the cause of the gospel. So as followers of Jesus, we should always be asking ourselves, will my conduct draw people to Jesus or push them away? So I have a question, church. There's an election coming up in a few weeks. Are your words and actions relating to that election, are they driving people away from Jesus or are they drawing people to him? 
as a citizen of heaven, our testimony of the gospel is more important than our political convictions. I will say that again. As a citizen of heaven, our testimony of the gospel is more important than our political convictions. And where our responsibilities as citizens clash, we are to remember our calling. Be about the gospel. So that means pray before you post, right? Think before you speak and live with a mind focused on God. Now I've talked a lot about the gospel today. And before we close, I think it's worth explaining what we mean when we say gospel. Gospel is a single word and it, def- it means good news. And specifically in this context, the good news about Jesus. Scripture tells us that every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God because God is perfect and we are not. So we don't measure up to who he is. And that creates a problem because our sin has consequences. And what Scripture tells us is the wages of sin, the wages of my sin and yours, it's death. That what we deserve is death for what we've done. But there is good news. Because while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. He was that perfect holy sacrifice on our behalf. And what makes that so incredible is that there is no condemnation, no condemnation for anyone that is in Christ Jesus. We are made blameless and holy before God. And when we choose to follow Jesus and accept the free gift of salvation through him, we are washed white as snow, we are made clean and holy. And that is good news. There is a way out of the spot we find ourselves in. We aren't perfect, but we know someone who is. And through him, we can live lives of purpose and meaning here on earth and spend an eternity in the presence of God. So how do we do this? Romans 10 lays it out very clearly for us. It says this, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So if you're still bearing the weight of your own sin, I encourage you to bow your head and pray with me right now. Just close your eyes and say, Lord Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner. I've fallen short of your glory and I need your help. I believe that you died to save me from my sin and I ask that you would wash me clean and become the leader of my life. Amen. I want to close this message today with the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 10. For though as we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Let's pray together as we close. Gracious Heavenly Father, I just thank you. I thank you for each and every person in this room, on our stream, in our church, and just everyone who's hearing my voice. Lord, I thank you for the way that you have called us to be messengers of your gospel. I thank you that you have have told us what we are to be about And what that is about is giving people who are lost the good news of salvation through you. Lord, your word is good. It is perfect. And it teaches us 
how to do what you have called us to do. Thank you for this role as messengers of the gospel. May we live it well. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand together. And when we sing together at the end of a sermon, it's an opportunity to publicly commit to what the Lord has put on our heart and what he has just spoken to us. So let's join together, singing these words, declaring and committing to what God has spoken to us. So when I fight, so when I fight, I'll fight on my knees with my hands lifted high. Oh God, the battle belongs to you. Every fear lay at your feet. I'll sing through the night. Oh God, the battle belongs to you. Sing that again. So when I fight. So when I fight, I'll fight on my knees With my hands lifted high Oh God, battle belongs to you It's every fear lay at your feet I'll sing through the night Oh God, battle belongs to you So when all I see when all I see is the battle, you see my victory. When all I see is a mountain, you see a mountain moved. And as I walk through the shadow, your love surrounds me. Nothing to fear now, for I am safe with you. Sing the song of commitment.
Amen. The battle is the Lord's. As you leave today, consider how you will live out your mission as a messenger. You know, last week and this week both, we've talked about the gospel going to the whole world. And if that language has pricked your heart in any way, if it's just resonated with you, in the bulletin there's information on our website as well about next steps. It's coming up and it's an opportunity just to explore, is this maybe a calling that God has on my life? I'd encourage you, if that's even remotely just, just resonating with you, just sign up for that. Just, just see what it's about and see if that's part of your story with God going forward. For all of us, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Let's go forth as messengers of the gospel. You are dismissed.